feminism, the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes or organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. Unlearning feminism because we're all doing it wrong. Even the dictionary. Brought to you by Pretty Broad. Make sure to check out our other podcast, Apply Liberally, where we delve deeply into the political state of our country. Sounds fun, right? Hey guys, I'm Madison. And I'm Sydney. And we are the founders of Pretty Broad Magazine. That's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) How do you, I guess like, this is a completely new podcast, um, different format and different content. (laughs) Totally different than Applied Liberally, which is definitely like a deep dive into like our political climate. Um, So I guess, Sydney, why don't you tell everyone how we came up with this? So we were sitting down a couple weeks ago, planning out some episodes for Applied Liberally, and we really wanted to do like a dedicated episode to feminism because we talk about feminism a lot. And a lot of what we do, we consider like a feminist action. It's like talk about these issues. And um, And it's definitely like a major cornerstone of what Pretty Broad is. Yeah, for sure. And I think we quickly realized as we were compiling information that this is like not a one episode deal Mm-mm. and that to sort of put 10 or 15 episodes in the middle of apply liberally on feminism would I think kind of like wash away um any attention that it could get for being like such a huge topic yeah, yeah. so we were like wait a minute let's just well and I'd like to just add in um, that we got the pleasure of hiring some really cool people to work with us yes. and expanding. So we have the ability to produce a second podcast at yeah. this point. So like huge shout out to the two people working with us who, um, one of them really made this first episode possible. Um, they spent so much time researching and really getting into like the things about feminism that like we don't really pay attention to which is sort Mm -hmm. of going to be the layout for For what we do with this series exactly so i guess we should start off by just doing a history of feminism for this podcast what do you think i think that's awesome for the sake of simplicity we're gonna do this in waves Just because it's already broken down that way and for research purposes and understanding the timeline in a podcast, it'll be a lot easier if we speak to you in the wave. But for your personal purposes, always remember that there was no and is no distinct moment that wave one becomes wave two or there was no moment that we realized we were in wave four. So keep that in mind. It wasn't like a woman's stopped being oppressed at the end of a wave and then started again. (laughs) No, yeah. So they definitely flow into each other. So let's get started. Wave zero. So if there is a wave zero, which I don't think there is, but if there is a wave zero, then it could probably be marked by Mary Wollstonecraft. 
fun fact about her, she gave birth to Mary Jr., a.k.a. Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. But that is not the coolest thing she accomplished in her life. She wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women, which basically focused on the whole conversation involving John Locke and other great theorists of the time about natural rights that were given by God. And she was kind of like natural rights given by God don't just go to men and it's kind of sinful if you say it is. First wave feminism. I know what you guys are all thinking when we talk about the first wave and that is Meryl Streep playing a suffragette. Or not if you didn't see that movie like me. Honestly, <laughs> You're missing out because it's Meryl. Was it great? I mean, it got a 72%. But again, like, it was about women. So that Who cares about sense. Rotten Tomatoes? If you were to Google the start of first wave feminism, the year 1840 might show up, but in reality, reactions to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen during the French Revolution started around the late 1700s. The era of revolution saw a lot of really great ideas being circulated, like the idea that normal men, <laughs> normal white landowning men, should be allowed to vote and participate in government. And that really got a lot of women thinking and realizing that, hey, maybe we should have more of a stake in this game called our life. Women like Susie Wright of Pennsylvania were so not down with Republican motherhood and in fact, she remained a spinster her entire life, super political, literally helped Benjamin Franklin lobby for like illegal activity by crazy guys trying to kill Indians. This is a true story and you should look it up. But this idea of Republican motherhood was really pushed upon women. This idea that they should be educated and well-spoken, but only enough that they can educate their children and create proper citizens for the Republic, which really was code for create more white guys to run this shit. During the first wave of feminism, the abolitionist movement was definitely gaining steam. Uh, you had plenty of slave narratives coming out and being circulated in the North. So you sort of had like this very liberal movement towards liberation, but it definitely didn't have the same sort of oomph that the suffrage movement had, especially among white women in the North. At the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, Sojourner Truth was given a chance to speak, but the rights of black women were definitely put on the back burner. Sojourner Truth had to find a way to like mix in the message of free blacks into this message about being a woman. In fact, she said this, she said, I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? It is important to note that while the first wave of feminism definitely saw a lot of people arguing for the equality but a maintenance of the difference between men and women, but there were women, what we would call liberal feminism and what really I think is what feminism has turned into today, who were really just about the similarities. They weren't into emphasizing the natural differences between men and women and maintaining some sort of social order based on biology. There were some women who were totally about like, fuck all the biological stuff, let's just get on the same playing field. But a lot of first wave feminists were into maintaining that sort of biological difference. 
by the year 1920, the actions of women like Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, I know you have heard their names, finally became fruitful when the 19th Amendment or the Equal Rights Amendment was passed. It said that the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Yay! Second wave feminism. I think of when I think of second wave feminism and that is housewives for sure like vacuuming and cooking turkeys and shit popping valiums having mammies yeah that is the 1950s I think of like the help oh for sure I know fuck (laughs) this is not funny so I guess we could say that the second wave of feminism started in the 1960s it's kind of like a branch off of like okay I'm fucking over vacuuming and I'm ready to be more So the root of the movement is the idea that these upper middle class white women were educated and now they wanted jobs. And many women still felt trapped in this like idea of domesticity that actually started in the first wave with the Republican motherhood. They felt they were really ill prepared to actually go into the workforce like they wanted to, which you saw with the fact that many of them didn't have an education, especially women who grew up throughout the 1940s. That was not a priority. And the media was constantly publicizing this idea of this domicile, domestic housewife, and that was the image that was their goal. So if we're gonna talk about the second wave, we have to mention Betty Friedan. She's the writer of The Feminine Mystique in 1963, and she's said to be the mother of the second wave. She kind of came up with the idea of the problem that has no name, which is about how unhappy women were in the 1950s and early 60s being these domicile housewives. She discussed in her book the question of the commercialization of women in media. I mean, think Leave It to Beaver, Father Knows Best. It's kind of just this perpetuation of women cooking and cleaning and constantly being happy, like an unfeeling emotionalist robot. Betty Friedan kind of posed this idea that because women were so unhappy with their current status as housewives, it must not have been biologically wired in them to do these things. It was because of Betty that John F. Kennedy's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women revealed the severe gender inequality. And because of that, he came up with solutions like paid maternity leave, which as we know now, still is really shitty. But before this, there was no maternity leave. Her book also made way for the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and the Civil Rights Act in reference to how women were treated. One of the most important things, I think, is like 
how much it affected the Griswold versus Connecticut case, which pretty much paved the way for women to get access to contraception. So Betty Friedan went on to continue to be super, super important in the second wave by founding NOW, which is the National Organization for Women, founded in 1966. So Friedan was like the first president of NOW and just a major player in the social rights movements of women at the time. But she did have a major downfall, which I feel all second wave feminists did, and that is completely disenfranchising the black community in this quest for white feminism. She pretty much pressured the Equal Employment Act to kind of take away rights of black men and give them to white women who were educated and wanted jobs. Therefore, these black men were not getting jobs to provide for their families, and only white women and white men who were middle class and educated had the option of providing. And as you can see, this is super problematic, and a lot of feminists at the time were very against it. This kind of caused Frieden's downfall, whereas like she did make a lot of strides for what we think of the second wave. She also caused a lot of harm, and she stepped down as president of NOW because of this in 1969. So the second feminist that always comes to mind when you bring up the second wave is Gloria Steinem. Now, Gloria Steinem is an incredible woman, but just like all white feminists, she has her problems just like feminists in general. She gained prominence in 1963 for these diaries she wrote as an undercover Playboy bunny waitress at the Playboy Club. And she depicted this scene at the club as this symbol of male chauvinism that was very prominent in all aspects of life at the time. And by 1969, she was this major figure of the movement with this goal to like legalize abortion, which ended up coming to fruition, and she wanted federal funded childcare, all things that were very privileged to want. Because you look at the time and you still have all of these disenfranchised black women. So at this point, women are really beginning to organize and come together in feminist protest, I guess. And this is when we start really talking about rape and domestic violence and sexual harassment. And it's because of this period that laws begin to be passed against marital rape and domestic abuse that were previously completely ignored. Women started feeling empowered to flee these situations and this further allowed for divorce laws and custody laws to change, which before this was completely in control of the man. Like if a man decided to leave a woman or was beating a woman, she really had no choice at that point but to stay with him. And then it wasn't until the second wave where women became empowered enough and the government was finally on their side, sort of, in relation to these problems. So I'm not going to go super into Roe v. Wade, but it's definitely something important that happened during the second wave. It's pretty much the Supreme Court case that decided that women have the right to an abortion. Now, of course, there are many regulations that are still held to this day in terms of this case, but it's something that we have all grown to know and love. One of the major, major turning points from the second wave into the third was the womanist movement. And I definitely think that was the one aspect of the 
the second wave that really made an impact on how we do feminism today. The womanist movement was just realizing the limitations of all of the previous things that have happened in the second wave. It realized that these past goals of feminists of the second wave were really only for cis straight white women and it did not consider the history or experience of black women, minorities, anyone. It focused on the femininity and the culture of all of these marginalized groups and found that they were equally important to a woman's existence. So Atlas Walker was definitely one of the biggest faces of womanism. If you aren't familiar with Alice Walker, she wrote The Color Purple. So she's definitely a very esteemed and like major player in this movement. It focuses on the fact that black women can't just look at it from the side of a woman's perspective because their entire culture has been constantly disenfranchised because of these same people who are asking for more. And so at that point, you have to understand that womanism is what will eventually be a more advanced version of feminism in the sense that it completely encapsulates what we want our intersectional views to be. Of course, there were problems or critiques of womanism, but in reality, the majority of it was just trying to get intersectionality to be a bigger part of how these women were thinking and to also see as men like completely equal to women and not just oh, we want like this, this, and this. It's like we want to be equals. Third wave feminism. So third wave feminism definitely starts in the 90s, again, these waves are not rigid. You could consider this era marked by Riot Girl, uh, this feminist punk subculture that was started by Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill, Note, Watch, Punk Singer. I think it's on Netflix or it was at some point, as well as the Anita Hill court case where she took Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to court for sexually harassing her, Carrie Washington, anyone, it's on HBO. You should also watch that. And the term third wave was actually coined, well, maybe not coined, but the first time it was mentioned was in an article in Ms. Magazine by Rebecca Walker's, fun fact, daughter of Alice Walker. So they're totally in this together. The third wave definitely saw more of a call to intersectionality and recognition of the multiple layers of oppression that different people in different communities can experience in their own life. The term intersectionality was introduced by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. One of the major critiques of third wave feminism was that this sort of reclaiming of women's sexuality and gender was problematic. I'll leave that up to your own discretion if you think it was or not, but there was definitely an emergence of this sort of like 
lipstick or girly feminists and the rise of raunch culture. So again, think this really goes through 2010. Like think of Christina Aguilera singing Candyman and women really like embracing their own sexuality, but really falling into what some people would consider this intense trap of femininity and objectification. And a lot of people felt that women were just further objectifying themselves, but claiming that it was like a feminist action. Rather than finding pornography a sort of objectification of a woman's body, third wave feminists found it to be super empowering and learning what to do with your own body and really reveling in that. So along with this new exploration of sexuality, definitely came an exploration of gender, which are definitely two different things and we will absolutely do an entire episode on that. But Judith Butler, who is an American philosopher and gender theorist, came out with this idea of gender performance, which was kind of new at the time to really talk about publicly. It was this idea that gender is entirely constructed, which really goes against what people had assumed for a long time, that your gender was essential. If you were a female, you felt female, you acted female because that was what was innately within you. And Judith Butler kind of said, that's not true. Your gender is entirely constructed. And in fact, it's so constructed that you perform gender, kind of like you've been given a script since birth and since the gender reveal party that you were present at in your mother's womb, you were handed this script and you've been performing this gender and what's worse is you think that you're not. Along with gender performance, people started focusing on the female body, well, any body, but the female body and how cultural meanings are inscribed on that body, focusing on the female body in production and in reproduction and how the female body performs in different spaces. And you can really see feminism start to move into a more and more theoretical field where people are applying theory to different texts and media and literature and social spaces and like really deconstructing what it means to be any kind of person, but through the feminist lens. Along with all of this, clearly sex positivity started gaining stream, and we really still see that today, that really carried forward over into whatever it is that we're in today. Uh, and I don't know if any of you guys remember the vagina monologues, but that's pretty indicative of what the third wave really constituted. Fourth wave feminism. So, what is fourth wave feminism? And when the fuck did it start? Because clearly there is a separation. Clearly we are not in third wave. We are no longer in Candyman era. But we're, in <laughs> but we're in something, right? It's like the third wave grew up in a sense and granted i mean like the third wave was my mom totally the third yes the third wave was seeing my mom go to work every morning and on the weekends go out with her friends and drink but also be like a bomb.com mom yeah but also like live in suburbia and like be consumed by that sort of like radical feminism that like really wasn't i feel like this is a perfect example of like third wave is people being like oh it's okay to say something slightly homophobic because my friend's gay yeah that's third wave third wave is like sex in the city exactly problematic but still fun to watch exactly and still like super important and somewhat revolutionary yeah so 
if we are in the fourth wave, which I think we are, uh, it's definitely been defined at least recently by that mattress performance by that Columbia student, Emma Solkowicz. Does anyone remember that? Or maybe the hashtag yes, all women, or even more recently, the Harvey Weinstein allegations, the Bill Cosby cases, the Me Too movement, the Women's March. I think those are all distinctively different than what we were seeing a decade ago. Yeah, so I think the fourth wave is here and it's about how we decide to define it because i mean look back at this entire history we just gave you it wasn't defined while it was happening and that's Mm -hmm. why the years are so misconstrued throughout history because no one actually knows when things are beginning or when Mm -hmm. they're ending but i think we can like sitting in it we can realize that never before have people so frequently and openly discussed LGBTQ plus rights. People really haven't paid attention to the health of transgender people and their rights. I mean, it's a federal issue at this point, whether or not they can serve in the military. So I feel like we see all these issues pertaining to new groups of people, non-binary individuals that like that vocabulary really didn't exist in the public sphere like two decades ago. Exactly. And I think because of these very prominent gender sexuality and just like i mean the awareness we have now is quite different than 2010 yeah i was gonna say it's even different from when we were like in high school which was like half a decade ago and i mean we're not just focusing on like gender sexuality we're also focusing on disability now and all of these different aspects of feminism that continuously need to be worked on notably though we are still talking about how black women are just not focused on like that has been a problem since remember first wave when we talked about sojourner truth and how they were kind of like okay we get it you're black but like women's rights first like and then the second wave when betty friedan and gloria steinem were like we get that you're still disenfranchised and you need your husbands to work but we want to do it first and the fact that we haven't dealt with the further disenfranchisement of black women within the movement only causes more injury to harm of all these other groups of trans men and women of people with disabilities of gender non-conforming individuals like those continue to like snowball into like neglected facets of the feminist movement even minority races i mean Mm -hmm. you look at like asian women Mm -hmm. um specifically chinese japanese vietnamese these women are constantly like subjectified as sex objects more than any minority and we don't talk about it still it's still not something that's discussed in a feminist circle and like why is that and i think this will allow us to get into what this podcast is So through this series, we really want to talk about those things. We want to deconstruct them, break them apart, expand them, and really focus on what we are not focusing on when we talk about feminism. And that's sort of why we called it Unlearning Feminism, because we have these ideas of what it means to be a feminist, how to be a good feminist, um, what it looks like when you're not a feminist or when you're doing it wrong, how to be inclusive, but then how to judge people who aren't inclusive enough. It's all becomes so convoluted and why? So each episode we do is really gonna try to figure out 
that wide. We're gonna focus on one issue in particular, one group being ignored, one issue not being talked about, one issue severely misunderstood, and we're gonna break it down. This will be the only time that you hear a really broad overview of all of feminism, so come back and check it out anytime you forget. And we will try to include brief histories of what we are discussing, but a lot of it's going to be in terms of how we talk about it now. And we're gonna bring in a bunch of different voices as this season progresses, and we're really, really excited to show you guys what we're coming up with. Please send us feedback, and if you feel like there's something in feminism that you think is severely overlooked, send it our way so we can dedicate an episode to it. So, what do you think feminism is? My name is Sarah Drizada. I am from Orlando, Florida. I'm 23 years old and identify as a non-binary genderqueer woman. And feminism to me, in the most basic sense, is all about equality. Um, while not ranking oppressions, but realizing that there have been groups that have been more oppressed than others, and realizing that there's a time when some people need to have a voice more than others. Um, and feminism to me is also intersectional, which means realizing that race, gender, class, and ability all work together.